Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A mid-19th century Irish politician, Daniel O'Connell, once said, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Whether one applauds or is appalled by Brexit, there is a broader consensus of opinion which agrees that the plan, or rather the lack of plan, for Britain's departure from the European Union will lead to difficulties for England. More dire prognosticators would argue that description is a classic example of British understatement and would suggest the word disaster be used instead. Ireland is the closest, most interconnected nation in the European Union with the UK. As unclear as Britain's path forward is, something equally unclear is whether Brexit will be the opportunity for Ireland that O'Connell's maxims suggest it could be, or whether the United Kingdom crashing out of the EU, will poach Europe's resilient Celtic tiger. Hello everybody, I'm Tom Daly, host of the American Biography Podcast. Today, the Agora Podcast Network has something of a, well, I don't want to use the word treat here, but let's just say, in recognition of St. Patrick's Day, we're going to be doing something that doesn't happen often we're going to shine a spotlight on how international events are affecting the Republic of Ireland's present and how they may impact its future. To do this, we're going to be leaning heavily on the expertise of our dear history friend, host of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast and the lecturer for Irish politics, European Union economics, and European Union integration at the Technical University of Dublin, Zach Twomley. Zach, 
Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Zach, as you were made aware on your recent trip to Massachusetts last fall, almost everybody on this side of the pond can claim at least one Irish uh, ancestor. So uh, you also won't be surprised that Irish Americans like myself are intrinsic experts on everything having to do with the old country. So I probably won't get much out of this conversation, but hopefully I can teach you a thing or two about your own country. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Now, I I kid, obviously. Um, you know, we're very lucky to have you, someone of your expertise. Oh, well. Um, but before we dig in, uh, I did want to reiterate how, how wonderful it was to spend time with you. Uh, and meet your lovely wife, Anna, at the Sound Education Podcast Conference last fall at Harvard. Oh, it was fab. It was such a pleasure. And, you know, I still, we are, I was only saying a while ago, it feels like another lifetime ago that that happened. It was only a few months, but since everything has happened and everything, the whole whole experience of going to America and going to Harvard and meeting you guys, meeting you and meeting people from Agora, meeting fans as well, it was just... It was incredible. Such a wonderful experience. It really was a, a unique and, and special experience. Um, and, and, you know, we actually delivered back-to-back lectures in the very same room. Hell yeah. Uh, and, 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 you sp- <laughs> and you spoke very eloquently then about the uh, romanticization uh, of the Easter Rising of, of 1916, and which you've also produced a, an amazing podcast series about for uh, When Diplomacy Fails. Yes, Yes, awesome. indeed. Now, now I've often wondered, uh, did you take any heat for that series? Uh, well, by heat, I mean, okay, so heat could mean a lot of things. It could mean a, a very, very strongly worded email, which I got a few of, or it could mean being kneecapped and left to die in an alleyway. I, did, <laughs> I, I didn't get the latter yet, but I did which, get certainly... Uh, yeah, that's good. Yes, it is. <laughs> I did get certainly a good few of the uh, the first, but it wasn't too bad. It was nothing I couldn't handle, and for the most part, I just ignored them, because something I've learned from being on Twitter, especially in the last few weeks, that if someone comes at you with very strong opinions... By and large, you're not going to persuade them to change their minds. And if mm. you have a busy schedule in your life, then it takes an awful lot of time to think up a response and all this kind of thing. And it's often not even worth it in the end. So I learned to pick yeah. my battles and most of the time just not fight any battles at all. <laughs> now, now, I don't know if, if right here at the top you, you want to put your views into context uh, when, when it comes to Ireland because... You know, to pull back the curtain, the reason for my little joke about Irish Americans there um, being experts is the fact that the vast majority of people outside of Ireland, even those who are of proud Irish descent, mm. probably don't have an appreciation for where Ireland's domestic political fault lines may lay. Sure. Uh, well... To me, and and this is a, I have to emphasize, and I did emphasize this a lot in the 1916 series, to my mind, the 1916 Rising was one of the worst things that happened to this country, mostly because of all the, the things it set in motion, all the falsehoods it seemed to legitimize, and all of the good stuff it, it pretty much did away with. So, to my mind, things like uh, physical force republicanism, this idea that you can win somehow by killing the other side even if the same side even if that side that you're fighting against is the same size as you or this idea that by by setting off several bombs all over the place you will actually somehow win a war 
even when most of the time the people that suffer are civilians, these approaches to actually getting your own way, unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that the 1916 Rising legitimized. And in my view, it's really a terrible thing. And it's extra terrible because today, on the one hand, we are taught that that kind of behavior is wrong. But then on the other hand, we're also taught that the 1916 Rising was a good thing. And if you disagree with that point of view, it's almost as though there's something wrong with you. And if you're in among certain people, say at the pub especially, you wouldn't go into a pub and say the 1916 Rising was a bad thing because nine times out of ten, there will be a a proclamation of the Republic document on the wall somewhere in a frame. So it, it it wouldn't be the greatest idea to do that. But to me, I've accepted it. I've let it roll off me because I realize that it is difficult for people to grasp the fact that what we've been told this time is wrong. And I know it's a cliche, oh, don't believe what, what the man tells you and everything like that. And I'm a big believer in in the idea that we should trust journalists, but we should fact check them and all that kind of thing. But I think in the case of the 1916 Rising, it is a lie that's been pushed upon us. And if you even look at the history of it, because it's not all that long ago that it wasn't looked on as a wonderful thing. There was contentious views around it. And not until really about the 60s did this narrative become, uh, mostly from the 50th anniversary really, this romantic idea of the 1916 Rising, like the perpetrators of it, oh, they were so brave, or they acted for all of us and they kicked out the British and they achieved our independence. None of those three things are true. They They were a minority within a minority within a minority they didn't actually achieve any independence for us at all. All we got in the end was home rule, except without Northern Ireland, which is very topical now that we're talking about Northern Ireland yeah. already. It's the first of many mentions of it. But it, it it didn't work. We were stuck to we were stuck as a dominion within the British Empire for another generation. And ironically yeah. ironically, not until De Valera started to use his political leverage throughout the thirties did Ireland actually achieve any modicum of independence? But still, even though De Valera went through that process and saw what politics could achieve, and even though he saw how useless, really, like, violence was, he still tried to perpetrate this myth that the Rising was this wonderful thing that achieved our independence. And you'll still find people today that see it as a wonderful thing, even though in the same breath they condemn what happened in the North with the Troubles, where the Nationalists and the Unionists attacked one another, They'll condemn that, but they'll see it as fine when some random group of rebels decide to rise up in Dublin City and, as a result, uh, several hundred people die who had nothing to do with it, including women and children and everything else, and including British army soldiers who were actually Irish boys who were just there because they needed a job. So there you go. Yeah, and that, that, as you said, like that led to the partition of the North in home rule, and that led to civil war. And isn't, if I'm, I'm not an expert on your domestic politics either, but I feel like your two major political parties in Parliament actually come out of that question of the partition of Ireland, whether to accept home rule or to not accept home rule. So that that brings it all the way up to today, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it does. And, do you know, to be honest, if you ask people these days where Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are two main political parties come from, if you ask them where they come from, for the most part, they probably won't know because it's a little bit tricky. Uh, Both of the parties pretty much came out of Sinn Féin, which people might have heard of. 
because Sinn Féin is still a political party in itself. But I think one of the main themes we're going to come across today, Tom, is that all of this stuff is quite complicated and it does require a bit of explanation. It's not as simple as the rising was good and that's that or Brexit means Brexit or let's just leave or anything like that. There is too many different layers to just jump into things super quickly in that sense. But to answer your question as briefly as I can answer it, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil both spun off from the Sinn Féin party. Fianna Gael, or Come On the Gael, the Council of Gales, as it was called in the 1920s, it started off as this, what's called, pro-treaty. In other words, its members predominantly were ones that signed the peace treaty with the British, which ended the Anglo-Irish War, or War of Independence. And the other side, which became Fianna Fáil, uh, was opposed to the treaty and fought against the people that signed it during the Civil War. The Civil War only lasted a few months, but in that space of time, more people died in the Civil War than died in the War of Independence. So it was a very difficult, awful time for people in Ireland. It turned family against family because it made them choose between whether they wanted to pursue peace or whether they were so opposed to the treaty that had been signed with Britain that they wanted to keep on with the violence. And the violence wouldn't be directed against the British. It would be directed against their own people, the Irish people. So it's it's a real tragedy today. On, uh, funnily enough, the Civil War is seen as a massive waste, whereas the War of Independence is seen as an inherently good thing. By and large, it's seen as something to be proud of because we fought against the British and we quote-unquote won that fight, even though we certainly did not. We held our own for a little while, but, I mean, the writing was on the wall the whole reason why we had to engage in guerrilla warfare tactics, etc., is because, I mean, to put it in perspective, we were trying to face off against the biggest empire in the world at that point, even after the First World War had decimated the British finances and military and everything else. So, as a look, getting all over the place to answer your question, very, very roundabout way and not all that brief at all, yes, the two main political parties today are Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Fianna Fáil originally being anti-treaty and Fianna Gael being pro-treaty, but these days uh, you wouldn't really notice too much differences between them, and certainly they don't call themselves pro or anti-treaty anymore. The only time you ever really hear that rhetoric is if, again, you're down in the pub or you're having some light-hearted conversations with friends about Irish politics, perhaps. But to keep on continuing your, to answer this question... Uh, since 2016, the general election there didn't return a majority for Fianna Gael. So currently what's going on is there's this thing called a confidence and supply agreement between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Fianna Fáil is essentially propping up a minority Fianna Gael government. And as a result of that, people are starting to see that there's 158 TDs, so 158 seats in our doll, in our parliament. And out of that, the vast majority of them would be Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael seats. They're the two largest parties in the country. There's also Labour. There's still a nascent Sinn Féin party as well. Social Democrats are a small party too. So there is other parties, but by and large, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael run the shots. And because they're essentially in coalition, but not quite in coalition with this agreement that they have, people are starting to think maybe there's not that many differences between them at all. But it's unlikely that they'll merge because they've been apart for so long. But some people certainly hope that they would just merge and get on with it. That does sound complicated, and yep. unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're about to introduce uh, Brexit into this equation, and that's mm-hmm. not going to help at all. So, <laughs> so we're speaking on March fifteenth. Sure. Three days ago, Prime Minister of the UK 
Theresa May was delivered another decisive defeat in her amended Brexit plan. Two days ago, MPs voted to reject a no-deal or a hard Brexit, and yesterday MPs in British Parliament voted to delay Brexit to as late as the end of June and also rejected the idea of a second referendum. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time this is edited and released, honestly, who the heck knows what will be happening. <laughs> yeah. But as it stands now, what are the realistic prospects for Brexit and what are their likely implications for Theresa May's government? Right. Well, this is going to probably be a fairly long-winded answer. What I'm going to try and do here is go over, for those that don't know, because there's going to be a lot of confusion, because there's confusion all over the place at the moment as what's happened in those three days, in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'm going to do my best to unpack them a little bit. But first things first, to answer your question before I go off on a tangent, I have looked, Tom, at a whole load of stuff to get in preparation with this. And I'm, of course, plugged in anyway to what's going on with Brexit. But every single time I listen to something where it says, and by the large, I'm listening to podcasts, where it says, oh, so-and-so is going to tell us what this means about Brexit or what this means for the country. The conclusion is always, yeah, we don't know. All the time, people are saying, we don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. We know what the pathway is. We know what the different amendments mean. We know what the timeline is for Theresa May. We know that next Wednesday she's going to bring a third attempt at her meaningful vote on her deal. Uh, we also know that in order for it to successfully happen, we know that in the European Council, the different heads of the EU will have to actually approve an extension full stop. So we know that she'll have until the end of June to make things happen as well. But we don't know in the meantime if any of that stuff will work. Anything could come up in the meantime to stop that. Will Theresa May be able to actually persuade the DUP to side with her? And we'll talk about the DUP soon. Will she be able to persuade the European Council's different heads to actually approve her deal? It's all up in the air. Do I think Brexit will happen? You see, it's tinged with the fact that I super don't want it to happen. But if it's going to happen, mm. I believe that the only way it will happen is with an amended version of Theresa May's deal, purely because... That's the deal that's been worked on for so many years. And as has been made very clear by Theresa May, she does not want to let go of it. She's going to go back now to the House on Wednesday for the third time. She has to amend it slightly. She can't just bring back the exact same deal again. But this is what I'm t this is what I'll get into with something of the hypocrisy. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any effort to hide my feelings on how I feel about Brexit in this, which I, I hope is okay with you. But uh... <laughs> this is not a history thing we're talking sure. about. We're talking about current politics here. Oh yeah. So you're wearing a different hat than you would on your podcast. And yes. I think all the listeners should be uh, understanding of that oh i think they will be but it, it's not even just in the podcast in actual in lecturing as well i have to maintain a, an, an unbiased perspective though it does pain me sometimes to do that and i think I, I probably don't do it as well as i could but yes in any case the uh the the situation with brexit is that i'd say that it'll pass with may's deal an amended version of it what you say what you will about the hypocrisy of coming back time and time again making everyone in parliament vote on another deal when they say we can't vote again on a referendum it's a bit bizarre but there you go that's the double standards the double speak of this whole situation we're in but i i do think theresa may could even go for a fourth vote if she wanted she is facing pressures in her party from the european research group 
that would be the main group of Eurosceptics. They'd be about 110 MPs. There's 650 seats in the House of Commons. So you can imagine out of that, it's a sizable, a sizable portion. But it also shows how kind of precarious her, her position actually is. She's missed out on a majority with her minority uh, government only by a few seats, which is why she was so reliant on the 10 DUPs in the first place. But there you go. Mm. It's it's a difficult situation. Do I think it'll pass? I think it will, purely because Theresa May is going to keep hammering at home. Do I want it to? Absolutely not. And it's hard sometimes for me to, to balance the whole wanting it to and trying to be realistic. But at the same time, I'm hopeful that anything can happen. <laughs> so I know I realize that's a very inconclusive answer for you. <laughs> I mean, it is, because as you point out, who knows? Like, you say Theresa May needs to amend something to bring mm. back to MPs. The EU, to my understanding, has said, we're done. Yeah. We have nothing left to give you. Mm. So, you know, and, and negotiations between the EU and the UK really hit a significant roadblock over the question of North Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering if perhaps you could give us some more of that background as to <laughs> why this question is so contentious. And now, it doesn't have to be crazy in-depth. Say, maybe just go back to Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> Are you sure I could go back to William the Conqueror <laughs> if you prefer? <laughs> um, let me see. Digging through my notes here. What the The main thing that I have learned about Northern Ireland is how little people actually know of it or understand it. This is the short version is that in 1998, what was what was called the Good Friday Agreement was signed, which essentially brought peace to Northern Ireland. It ended the conflict called the Troubles between the Nationalists and the Unionists or the Catholics and the Protestants, respectively, that had that had been fought. Now, that is a generalization, but just to breeze through it as much as we can here, it ended that conflict and it brought about a kind of power sharing agreement to the island. Now, that's good on the one hand, but the problem with that is that once the conflict ended and once Northern Ireland left the political and public consciousness of the British and Irish press, people started talking about it less. Now, over here in Ireland, Northern Ireland is known of and we know what it is and we know what it means by and large. But in the UK, it's different because to my understanding in the UK, they're not taught about Irish history in school, whereas... While we're not taught about British history in school, maybe people don't care, but because of my own interest, I actually do uh, know a fair bit about it. And in the case of Northern Ireland, the problem is that the less that Northern Ireland was talked about, because the less relevant it was, it wasn't coming up in the news, etc. The British had more than enough to worry about. Suddenly you get a whole generation of people who grew up even even in the 90s or just briefly after Good Friday Agreement was signed who don't know anything about Northern Ireland. And that might sound bad in itself, but get get a load of this, right? Northern Mm -hmm. Ireland is a part of the United Kingdom. It is a constituent part of the United Kingdom. It has a devolved government, uh, devolved parliament at Stormont and everything else. So if you as a UK citizen, if you as a British citizen living in England or Scotland, whatever, don't know what the story is with Northern Ireland, it means that you don't actually know where the borders of your state end or begin. It means you don't know what the legal status of your country is. It means you don't know a whole load of things. But don't think that this ignorance is just restricted to normal people. It's also extended to the people that are supposed to be in charge and supposed to know what's going on. And we'll talk about this again. We'll come back to this again. This idea that when they were talking about Brexit in 2016, when they were talking about taking back control and giving £350 million more a year to the NHS and all that kind of thing, no one stopped to think about what it meant for Northern Ireland. 
And with that Good Friday Agreement that I mentioned, it was enshrined within that that there would never be a hard border on the island of Ireland again because it would be a surefire way to ensure conflict once more. But no one stopped to think about what would happen if, theoretically at that point, because they didn't know if they would leave or not, if Northern Ireland left with the UK, if it left the EU and became part of a different uh, market and all this kind of thing, you'd need different tariffs and everything. It would be part of a different customs union. It'd be part of a different trade area. So you need to set up some kind of checks or balances to make sure that the different standards and everything were applied. So you need to set up different areas for checking those things on the border. So while this was loudly pointed to by certain people in Ireland, it wasn't, I would I would argue, it wasn't pointed to loudly enough by people in the Irish government at the time who kind of just let the British go for it without really saying, eh, hold on guys, this will really affect us. Now, Northern Ireland voted to remain in the United, in the, in the European Union by 55%. So it was really only England that voted to leave as a majority. Scotland was 62%, I believe. Oh, and Wales as well voted to, voted to leave, which is bizarre considering how much funding they get. But in any case, with hmm. the... With, sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> Why is the North Ireland question so contentious between the EU and the UK? Right, well... The whole thing boils down to history and context and how terrified people are of things going back to the Troubles era where for most of the 70s and 80s and and parts of the 90s as well, it was all over the news. Someone got killed, someone got shot in the north, a bomb went off, children were killed for no reason. Three and a half, more than three and a half thousand people died during the Troubles. And while that might not seem like a lot, for a population of only really about a million, about 1.3, 1.2 million. It's it's quite a sizable amount. And it wasn't just the deaths, it was also the fact that it pervaded everything. And it also, the more conflict there was, the more tit-for-tat killings there was, it engendered this sense of us versus them. And that's why it proved so difficult to actually solve. And I mentioned this at the end of the 1916 Rising series. The thing that's so admirable about the whole peace process in Northern Ireland is that it's not just like, oh, two sides fought a war and that was it. This was for a generation where my brother killed your brother and now we both have to sit down and hammer this piece out so that our children don't go through the same thing. I know for a fact that you killed my brother and you know for a fact that I killed yours, but we're going to do this now because we have to, otherwise this will go on forever. And it takes an awful lot of maturity to reach that stage. And for a long time, Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. wasn't there yet. And it only really got there in 1998. And even then, not completely. It wasn't until the early 2000s that Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party agreed to share power together. And even then, it was an imperfect situation, but it's certainly better than what is there now. But in any case, to everyone in Ireland, and both North and South, the last thing they want is a return to the old ways with violence. And the belief is that that's the exact situation a hard border will bring about. That a hard border is all it will take to touch off a new cycle of violence, which nobody in the right mind wants. Those that insist, and I'm sure we'll come back to this later, those that insist that a hard border can't possibly come about because nobody wants a hard border is like saying, I don't know, saying, well, we will get the perfect trade deal or we will never go to war because nobody wants to go to war. You cannot predict what's going to happen. And if you take yourselves out of international agreements 
by the by the word of international law you must be under some kind of arrangement and if you're not in the european union you're in something else and if you're in that something else and you share a border with someone who is in the eu then you need to have some kind of system in place to make sure those checks and balances are done properly and the only way to do that is with a border unfortunately and that's why people are so afraid they don't want the violence to come back and they know that if the uk leaves with northern ireland then there will be a border, no matter what people say. Okay, so I, th- I think it, it's easy to understand that uh, an aversion to uh, rekindling this generational violence is, is a big motivator from the Irish perspective as to why you, you want to maintain that, that open border. Mm-hmm. To flip it around, though, why is this question of the border being open such a problem for the UK's Tory government and Brexit hardliners? Well, the reason why it's such a problem is because when you look at Northern Ireland and you think of possible solutions to it, there's very few solutions other than staying in the same customs union, staying in the same single market, etc. There's very few solutions that come to mind. So this is where the idea of the backstop came from and there's a lot of confusion around the backstop the backstop is essentially it's pressing pause on the process of northern ireland leaving the customs union leaving the eu and it's saying let's leave northern ireland in the same customs union same single market etc as the island of ireland so they're all in the same situation but only until the end of 2020 in the meantime uk you guys figure out exactly how we're going to make this work And then once you figure it out, then we'll move out of the backstop and move into something else. So it's a temporary arrangement. But the problem with the backstop for those that fear its implications, they think that what it'll do is leave Northern Ireland basically subject to the whims of the EU. And that's why even though it seems like the 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 idea of this free open border is the problem what's really the problem is the backstop to people who who fear they don't so much fear an open border because that's what people want they want the border to stay open and free and permeable and everything else like the way it is now where you can get on a train from dublin to belfast like you couldn't do that 30 or 40 years ago that's not what they're afraid of they're afraid of this suggestion by the eu to keep that system going Now, to my mind, it is a bit odd to get all hung up about it because, first of all, the EU has made it perfectly clear over and over again that the last thing they want is to fan any kind of flames in Northern Ireland. I mean, nobody wants to be in Northern Ireland. It's often said the British don't even want to be in Northern Ireland anymore, and yet they're stuck there with the massive bills and basically propping up the economy of that small portion of the island. All that aside, do... We think that the backstop is a good idea, yes, but it's only supposed to be a temporary thing. And not only that, it's not only just supposed to be a temporary thing, it was also only supposed to be an emergency measure. All this time spent worrying about the backstop, all this time spent saying, oh, the backstop is terrible, it's going to keep us tied to the EU, it's going to keep us away from the UK where we want to be. You would understand those fears if... The backstop was literally the suggestion that the EU brought forward as the be-all and end-all that was going to that was going to keep Northern Ireland stuck to the EU forever. 
it was supposed to be an emergency measure and it was supposed to be temporary, but there's been so much pontificating and rhetoric about how to actually stop the backstop. No one's thought to actually say, hold on, this wasn't what the EU wanted. This was an emergency measure in case the UK didn't find a solution. And of course, they haven't found a solution in the last two years when they've been discussing this. And when Theresa May's deal was brought forward, they singled out backstop as this bugbear of of the Democratic Unionist Party as this supposed uh, silent, sneaky way for the EU to keep us away from the United Kingdom. And they focused on it without really thinking of what it meant. And it did not mean the stuff they said it to mean. All it meant was a temporary measure that would only be brought in if nothing else had come up. And the idea was that at the end of 2020, it would be run out and, and you would be able to do some other arrangements, but none of the arrangements they're suggesting will actually work. I mean, for crying out loud, the United Kingdom, it's, I mean, it is a great country, and I do, I know several people there and everything, and, I, and I'm very fond of them, but they got freaked out by a drone in Heathrow. I don't think they're ready for any, like, technological arrangements or alternative arrangements that they've brought up, and without any, ever actually specifying what they mean. So, it's, it's just... It's dire, but this this whole idea of the backstop, people are getting it way out of whack. They're focusing on it far too unnecessarily, where there's really no need to get so obsessed about it. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen it referred to as a backdoor annexation. Yeah, um, and that that <laughs> seems a bit bit much. I mean, and, and I mean, from from my side of the Atlantic, I, I think uh, Irish nationalism is much more represented. Um, you know, I, on the bus in Boston riding to work, I used to go past a, a mural of uh, 26 plus six equals one on the side of, of a liquor store. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so it's very much what I see, what, but, yeah. but what's, what's, what do the Northern Irish actually want? Well, the funny thing, uh, well, I suppose not the funny thing, but the, the odd thing about the Democratic Unionist Party, those 10 DUP MPs that are supporting or not supporting Theresa May at the moment, the odd thing about them is that in Stormont, they only have 27 seats of the Legislative Assembly that's in Northern Ireland. So the Legislative Assembly is called Stormont, and it has 90 seats. 27 of those are DUP members. They stand for arguably the more hardline version of unionism. They also stand for social conservatism. They're against abortion. They're against same-sex marriage and everything else. So they are holding firm to a very specific, uh, a very specific, like, demographic within Northern Ireland. And that is by no means, if you ever go to Northern Ireland, it is by and large a very a very tolerant place a very nice place to be now if you go to certain areas and start waving a tricolor around you're going to get in trouble but that could be the same could be said in most parts of the world really mm-hmm. like you don't um you don't what what the problem with the DUP representing northern ireland is that they're doing the exact opposite they are misrepresenting what northern ireland really is if you instead had the likes of Sinn Féin in addition to the DUP, because Sinn Féin also has 27 out of 90 seats in Stormont, but Sinn Féin are abstaining from going to Westminster because they've always abstained from going to Westminster because their mantra is that if they go to Westminster and sit there, then they're legitimizing the occupation of the North and they're they're legitimizing the, the British control over the North. But because of that, 
unfortunate policy, instead of having what Northern Ireland actually is, people are going to, and already have been, equating Northern Ireland with this very backward, very outdated, very conservative in the extreme version view of what Northern Ireland really is. Of course, people voted for those DUP representatives and they voted for those 10 DUP MPs too, but by and large, they do not represent the majority of opinion. I saw an opinion poll recently which said that 67% of Northern Irish people do not believe in the vision of Brexit that this DUP party is pushing for. Now, I know you could say an awful lot about polls, you can criticise them till the cows come home, but even if... Even if there's margin for error, all that kind of thing, I'm sure it's not the first time that the DUP has been has been painted in that light. And it seems to me a, a real shame that one of the first pictures that international observers get of Northern Ireland is the DUP, which in in a in a very big way they are not good representatives of what Northern Ireland is all about. Northern Ireland is not. Uh, for the most part, socially conservative, intolerant, all that kind of thing. It is trying to bring itself up on par with what Ireland has become in the last decade. And it's being blocked by the unionist perspective. Now, not all unionists are like that, and I don't want anyone listening in Northern Ireland to think that I'm against all unionists. I have several friends who are, in fact, unionists, and I completely respect their view and their Mm -hmm. opinion. But the Democratic Unionist Party as opposed to the smaller Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP. See, this is why it's complicated. <laughs> there is two Unionist parties, and there's also independent Unionists as well, all of them sitting in Stormont. The Ulster Unionist Party only has 10 seats in Stormont, whereas the Democratic Unionist Party has 27. So Democratic Unionist Party is the larger of the two Unionist parties, and it's also the more hard line. But moods and and attitudes and opinions have become more tolerant, certainly towards the nationalists, towards Catholics and everything else. The odd thing is that while that tolerance uh, between the two communities has has certainly increased, you also get a, a reaction almost within the Unionist Party to become more conservative in other respects. So on social issues, on religious issues, on on the right to life of the unborn, on same sex marriage, all these kinds of things. So. I'm sorry again. I've forgotten the question, but <laughs> hopefully, I gave you some. No, few you're, no, there. you're still on point. There is the uh, the, nor- <laughs> the Northern Irish perspective. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yeah. Now, I, I do want to hop over to to a different kind of set of questions. You've sure. mentioned several times uh, so far about, you know, 
you would need to put a hard border in there because of tariffs and other economic changes that would occur mm. should Brexit actually ever happen. Now, what would the economic consequences for the Republic of Ireland be when the UK leaves the EU? Oh boy. Well, I mean, take your pick. First and foremost, the UK is our biggest trading partner within the EU bloc. We certainly do get we have great deals with other members, but, but purely by by law of geography, they are our biggest trading partner. And it's a wonderful system that we have now where in the single market, you're trading with the UK as if you're trading within a single country. There is no non-tariff barriers or no different standards. There is the currency issue, but because it's the euro and not the not the pound versus the Irish punt as we used to have, Irish punt, like that was that was our old currency beforehand. It was very much modeled on the pound, unsurprisingly, because that's sort of what we had been under before. Mm-hmm. But now that we have we have the euro and we're trading through the pound and it's it's a very good system. The only thing we really have to worry is exchange rate fluctuations, which for the most part don't affect us all that much. Uh but the biggest problem that people foresee if the UK leaves is that well we'll be subject to completely new regulations as will the united kingdom so suddenly those those trading in beef those trading in milk those trading in grains agriculture will be our our main export to the uk and the uk is is famous for its its brilliant services industry which is makes up 80 percent of their exports i believe and within that if you suddenly have a load of tariffs piled on top of everything where they weren't there before it's going to be catastrophic. And for years, well, for the last two years, when people talk about a no-deal Brexit as this as this boogeyman of Anglo-Irish trade, they do so with good reason, because even in the areas where people are struggling, and this goes for British traders as well, when they have to send, when they trade t- back towards us, when they export to us, and when they import from us, both sides will be affected. For Ireland, it's going to be pretty devastating, but at least, on the other hand, we will have, as a backup plan, we will have our other European Union trading partners. And if we have to, I suppose, we will change our habits. Perhaps we will become more internationalized by virtue of the UK being difficult. But we will never be able to completely escape trading with the United Kingdom. And because of that, we will never be able to completely avoid the damage. That's why when people talk about a no-deal Brexit, and when they talk about it potentially leading to recession in the United Kingdom... In the same breath, you could often hear people saying that, well, the same thing will happen to Ireland because while our economies aren't as interdependent as they were in the 60s and 70s before we joined the EU, now, even now, there is still an awful lot of interdependence and it goes it goes both ways. Obviously, we're only an island of 6 million people here, whereas the UK, 10 times and more of that. So you're going to get discrepancies, you're going to get imbalances, but we are quite dependent upon each other and we have a good working relationship going and that's why it just makes me it makes me so angry and so upset that for the sake of some not very well defined reasons this is all going to go down the drain now unless it can be stopped it's going to be catastrophic for ireland and all you have to do to find that out is you could search brexit irish farmers and you'll see an awful lot of depressing headlines and depressing news right then and there oh man <laughs> So speaking <laughs> speaking of going down the drain, I, I have to ask now, are there dangers for the Irish character in all of this? And what I mean is I have read that, that certain politicians and parties within the, the Irish political system 
uh, are sort of playing off these tensions Brexit is creating to exploit Irish nationalistic fervor, uh, you know, in order to improve their domestic standing. Now, I've seen this phenomenon referred to as waving the green jersey. I don't know if that's what you guys actually call it. I mainly get that from American news outlets. Um, <laughs> but in, in general, you know, as nationalism is a rising problem worldwide, and we've seen that liberal democracies in the West are not immune to it, is there a danger that by doing this, you're opening a door to these darker impulses similar to, you know, what gave rise to Brexit in the first place? Yeah, I I completely understand that. And I have to say that in all this absolute nonsense and, and awful stuff that's happened, I have to say I've been very proud of how Ireland's responded to it and how we haven't really gone down any dark political paths. The main thing that worries people is the financial aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nigel Farage and a few other people tried to set up an, an Irexit party, a, an Irish... Uh, European Union exit party and they were mostly laughed at I, w- I don't know anyone who thinks of uh, of an Irish exit from the EU as a credible thing we are insulted regularly with how wrong British people seem to get the Irish character and how they just suggest that oh Ireland should leave the EU as well and join with the UK as if that's just something that has never happened and never gone badly before yeah. you know <laughs> It's it, it, it really hasn't showed up the British, certain aspects of, of the British people, uh, politicians. It hasn't showed them up in a particularly good light. But I'm happy to say that for us, the main thing is financial worries. We are not all that worried politically about how this is going to affect Ireland. I mean, domestic politics... It's weird to say this in a way, but I think we got it out of our system with the Troubles. That's that's a probably very insensitive way to put it, but I haven't heard of or know of anyone who would think, well, this is Ireland's opportunity now that, that Britain is suffering. I mean, to those that want unification with the North, there's an element of this could open up some political doors and the UK is shooting itself in the foot. But no one I know of and no media outlets I know of in Ireland have been have been salivating and, and rubbing their hands together at, at the thought of 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 becoming more radical politically or anything like that. By and large, our our Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, our, our Prime Minister, in other words, he's been very even-handed, very calm. And our Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, has also been very impressive, very reserved, even when the most ridiculous things are lobbed in his direction by people who really should know better. And I'm I'm no fan of this current government, really. I do think the change needs to happen in Ireland, that our, our two-party system needs to change. But I do have to give credit that uh, our Taoiseach and our foreign minister have done very well in handling the situation. And for most of us in Ireland, we want things to proceed calmly. We don't want any extreme violence because we've seen where that leads. And we know that going down that road doesn't doesn't solve anything, doesn't bring us anything good. And we also are quite sad, for the most part, that this has actually happened. Because the situation that was set up before, uh, all the stuff with the Good Friday Agreement and everything... And now all these complications have come up and certain amounts of ugliness have been shown by the British side too towards Ireland, which, I mean, most people in Britain have been lovely and have been very regretful about the whole thing. But I spend far far too much time on Twitter.com as it is. And I do find myself 
even and you know me tom as yeah. someone who wouldn't wave the tricolor or anything else but it, it it grinds my gears sometimes when i saw that 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 i can't remember her her name but she suggested that a british politician suggested that well they should they should try and blockade the irish they should starve the irish into into agreeing to uh, these terms that britain had that's not a great uh, uh, choice of words there not a great not a great uh, policy considering what happened with the famine and how yeah. how sensitive that is still to this day especially when we see things like that and then it it drives home the impression that the british aren't really sorry for what happened in ireland and i have to say i did get very emotional the last few years when you had a great reproach among between our two nations where queen elizabeth ii came over and met with our president michael d higgins and they had a dinner together and while it was couched in politics and while it was probably not as satisfactory as some people wanted it was still an incredible gesture and an incredible act of reconciliation and the problem with brexit the problem with all this stuff that it has created is that it shoots that whole thing in the head all this progress that has been made all this progress that has been made between ireland and and britain and all the all the reconciliation all the genuine efforts to make peace possible between two peoples that have always fought against each other and only in the last few decades has that finally come to an end and i do believe that irish people aren't looking at this as an opportunity and they're certainly not uh waving the green jersey i've honestly never heard that before <laughs> i could it could be it could be put in some other other places that i don't tend to read but no one that I have seen is waving any green jersey. I mean, it's a few days until St. Patrick's Day, so there'll be certainly a lot of green worn then. <laughs> but I haven't really seen anyone specifically say, oh, I'm so glad this is happening to Britain because now violence is going to start up again or extreme politics and, and all this kind of jazz. People are, are apprehensive about the financial impact, but politically they're quite reserved and, and quite... I suppose they wanted to blow over, but they also they they wanted to be, if possible, contained. If it can't be stopped, let's contain the damage as much as possible. Well, that's, that's good to hear that you know at least some parties, some nations are comporting themselves with some dignity. Because in the big picture, and to wrap up, I think today, you know whether you you agreed with Brexit or disagreed with Brexit, it it's become a fiasco, and mm-hmm. you know. Such a fiasco is what has this done to the future stability of the EU? Like, will it lead other nations to look for the door? Um, You know, Hmm. I'm thinking of the Yellow Vest protests in France or of Italy's populist government who sort of ran on disaffection with the EU. Is is this a bump in the road of history or is the EU really approaching some sort of existential crossroads? Well, I'm going to I'm going to borrow a phrase from one of my students that 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 said it earlier on when I asked this question to them and they well he said that it it seems to him as though Brexit is uh, two things at once. It is both seriously worrying to the EU to other member nations, but it also it is also the best medicine for them to see how painful it is and almost how fruitless it is to try and leave something like the European Union. And and bear in mind as well, Britain only joined in 73, along with Ireland and Denmark, whereas other nations like France, like Italy, they were part of the original, what's called the EEC6, so the European Economic Community Group of Six, that, that essentially founded the European Union. Yeah. So it's impossible to imagine, for example, Italy, which 
which has been pretty much uh, comforted extensively over the last few years as part of its membership in the EU. And certainly in France as well, it's impossible to imagine France not being part of the EU. I mean, for all the for all the Yellow Vest protests that have happened, I mean, there's been an awful lot of work done behind the scenes between the Germans and the French and publicly as well, that suggests that it is impossible. And I don't think, even when Marie Le Pen, the more far-right candidate for the mm-hmm. French elections, even even when she was running and and people were even voting for her, those that voted for her, not all of the people that voted for her, wanted Marie Le Pen to take France out of the EU. Because what do you do when you do that? And, and how how does that work for France? Just like, how does that work for Italy? And all these con- like all these concerns, we haven't even talked about immigration or anything else like that, but all of those concerns, I mean, I think people are starting to realise that it's not as simple as blame the EU and then once we get out of the EU, everything will be fine. Because first of all, getting out of the EU is not as simple as we should just leave or let's just leave or let's just get on with it. Like That's just not how international politics works. It's not how international law works. And people are starting to, hopefully in time anyway, they'll realise that. And certainly in the rest of the European Union, they've already realised that. And even though there's populist movements, even though in Poland there's a not very favourable right-wing government, and uh, in Hungary, Viktor Orban is not doing very nice things, he is... He is absolutely not going to leave the European Union because he knows full well that as bad as it is now... It could get far worse if he's outside of the block. But that brings another question, Tom, that this idea that if Theresa May does return with a deal or if she wants to get this extension, it's all very well for her to say what she wants when she's in Parliament. But it depends upon the European Council. And the European Council is the assembly of the 28 heads of state from the different member states, which is, I always thought it was ironic that in order to get this deal passed, it requires a democratic act from <laughs> from the European Union, <laughs> something which the democratic deficit was always pilloried, and to a certain extent it's, it's reasonable to pillory it. But this idea that uh, to progress any further, the European Council needs to actually give its okay is, is quite an interesting situation. But yeah, to, to your point, and sorry for keeping on going on no. tangents here, the, the European Union... I think it's been given a very short, sharp shock. But even look at at the ways that it's thrown its lot in behind Ireland, resolutely defending Ireland and defending Irish interests. Mm-hmm. It's been very impressive and very reassuring for us to see that even as something as 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 minute in like I mean, looking at the grand scheme of things, five hundred five hundred and ten million people living in the EU. Well, I mean, who the hell cares about these 1 million people living in Northern Ireland? But it matters to Ireland, and because it matters to Ireland, it matters to Brussels. So it is good and reassuring to see that the EU has our back. And I think we are moving closer and stronger together because of that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're looking for a European army, and that's something that people often say, well, it might be bad Brexit at the moment, but I mean, at least we're escaping the European Union army plan as if that's even a thing. And like people talking about it, Emmanuel Macron talking about wanting to have a European Union army is like uh, Poland talking about uh, Poles not having any role in the Holocaust. It doesn't make it true, you know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Ending on a super controversial note there, but you catch my drift. I do. 
I do. Well, Zach, that that was a that was a great talk. Uh, I'm very happy to listen to you go on tangents. They're just so full <laughs> of passion and knowledge, and this is why well, people you. tune in to listen. Ah, yes. Well, it's it's been my pleasure, and thank you very much for those listening. We had some serious technical problems, and Tom was an absolute doll, being very patient and allowing my computer to essentially uh, repair itself before our eyes. <laughs> well, I am nothing if not a doll, so thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I could talk about this stuff for another hour. It's so nice to be given free reign and not have any, uh, not have any restraints on my opinions or my views or anything else. So hopefully, I haven't sent people into an angry tailspin, and they'll be coming back for more another time. Well, if they do, I got your back. So no, thank you so much. Perhaps we should do this every single week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have time oh. for that, but anyway. <laughs> Zach, figure in seriously. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. Um, you know, you have a lot of knowledge on this topic, and I know people were very interested, even asking um, on Twitter uh, to to get some insights. So hopefully, this is a nice little St. Patrick's Day. Listen for them and uh, Aaron Gobra. Yeah, thank you very much, and slauncher as we say, and and let's say hopefully. Uh, if you're listening to this, maybe you'll listen to it with a beer or two and you won't take it as seriously as, as I have. And you'll cheer up a wee bit. It's a great time to be alive and it's not all doom and gloom. So, yes, I hope I didn't depress people too much. Thank you so much for having me on, Tom. And I'd love to come on again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers, Zach. Slauncha.
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 